This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in Melbourne's CBD. Today's big question, isn't the Bible corrupt and untrustworthy? My guest today is Gillian Asquith. Gillian lectures in New Testament and Greek at several Melbourne theological colleges. Her areas of interest include the transmission of the text of the New Testament and biblical archaeology. Please welcome Gillian Asquith. Now, Gillian, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you very much. Uh, to kick off Bigger Questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're talking with Gillian Asquith about if the Bible is corrupt and untrustworthy. Now, many have claimed that the Bible has been transmitted like Chinese whispers. So, Gillian, our smaller questions to you today are, how well do you know Chinese whispers? Have you ever played the game? I have, when I was about eight, along with Pass the Parcel and Pin the Tail on the Donkey. Okay, right. It was right. a long time ago. Were you any good at it? No. Right. Okay, <laughs> well, hopefully your trivia knowledge is a little better. Chinese Whispers, of course, is a game where a sentence is whispered along a line of recipients and is often changed. It's been described as inaccurately transmitted gossip. So there's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one. According to Wikipedia... Which of the following is not an alternative name for the game Chinese Whispers? Is it A, Telephone, B, Fax Machine, C, Russian Scandal, or D, Don't Drink the Milk? <laughs> so which of those is not an alternative name for the game Chinese Whispers? Well, I have heard it called the Telephone Game, so I know I'm safe with that one. Yes, correct. Yeah. Um, you couldn't make up the one about the milk, could you? So I'm going to go with the fax machine. The fax machine. And that's correct. It is. <laughs> the telephone game, of course, is, is the popular name in North America. Uh, question two. According to the Guinness Book of Records, the largest ever game of Chinese whispers was organised in London in the United Kingdom in 2008. 1,300 children between the ages of 7 to 11 participated. Now, the original sentence was, together we can make a world of difference. What was the final phrase? Was it A, together we can make a world of difference? B, we're going to break a world record? C, everybody is evil? Or D, ha? <laughs> so what was the final phrase? Uh, I think I'm going to go with D, ha. And you're right. Congratulations. Yes. Um, in fact, it took... Two hours and four minutes for the whisper to go from the first to the last participant. Uh, and all of those were what the phrase was at some particular point. So uh, anyway, so Gillian, congratulations. Out of our Chinese Whispers quiz, you got two out of two smaller questions right. A big round of applause. Now, Gillian, well-known atheist Richard Dawkins, in his bestseller, The God Delusion, asserts that the Gospels are not reliable accounts of what happened in the history of the real world. He claims that the Gospels were copied and recopied through many different Chinese whispers generations. So is this what happened with the Bible? It's just a bunch of Chinese whispers, inaccurately transmitted gossip? 
He is right that the texts that we have have been copied and recopied through countless generations. But he's not right about the Chinese whispers. Okay, do you want to explain more? Sure. Um, we've got a whole lot of evidence that we can um, bring to bear on the text today that show us that we can be as certain as possible that the Greek New Testament we have today and the English translations that come from that are as close as you could possibly wish to get to the originals. Oh, really? How so? Well, uh, let's start with archaeology. Mm -hmm. So there was a discovery back in the late 1940s in Israel, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you've probably heard of those, mm -hmm. a whole lot of really ancient documents that actually pushed back our existing versions of um, the Old Testament to a thousand years earlier than previous. We had medieval copies of the Old Testament, the Dead Sea Scrolls pushed it back a thousand years. So what did they discover when they compared the two manuscripts? They discovered that there was a remarkable amount of similarity between these documents documents that were copied 100, 150 BC, and the copies that are still in existence from the medieval times. So is that saying that in that thousand year period, the text had remained pretty much the same? That's exactly right. The text was revered, and so great care was taken when it was copied. Mm. But did the Dead Sea Scrolls challenge the Bible at all? Some claim that the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls erode the very foundation of Christianity. The reason for that perspective is that there are a number of elements in the Dead Sea Scrolls that have a similarity uh, with Christian documents. There are no Christian documents as part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, but there are similarities. So and what were the Dead Sea Scrolls? Um, so the Dead Sea Scrolls were copies of the Old Testament. They were also documents that had been uh, written by this small monastic community that had moved away from Jerusalem. They weren't happy with the temple and its worship. So they set up their own community and they were waiting for God to bring along um, his agent of change who would overthrow the Romans, get rid of the um, corrupt priesthood in the temple and install their community. So we have all of these kind of sectarian writings amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. And people have said, well, there's such a similarity. The earliest Christians obviously just copied their um, ideas from this monastic community and created a fictitious Christ. So it sounds persuasive. It, it, it does, until you actually realise what's going on. All Jews in the first century had some form of expectation that God was going to do something miraculous to save them from the Romans and to reinstall them as um, the independent owners of the land of Israel. The monastic community was operating with that mindset. Mm -hmm. Jesus was operating within that cultural environment. So there was a shared understanding, shared expectation, shared cultural environment. Doesn't mean that there was direct dependence between the Dead Sea Scrolls and Christians. It's just that they lived in the same culture, sharing similar cultural values. That's exactly right. So that's what you'd expect. So do the Dead Sea Scrolls challenge the Bible at all, though? Um, no, they actually enhance our understanding of, uh, say, why some people accepted Jesus and what his message was and why other people rejected it. it. It really helps us understand what's going on in the Bible. Okay. Just a stepping back to helping answer our question about the Bible being corrupt and untrustworthy. What's the lesson from archaeology? The lesson is that we have a group of people who took great care in transmitting their texts and we can be confident that that care was extended to the Christian documents as much as the Old Testament ones. Critics of Christianity, though, claim that we have no original manuscripts of the Bible. Is that a problem? Uh, we don't have any originals. It would be nice to have them. We don't. It's actually not a problem. We have a huge number of copies. How many what do we have? 
the number's always changing because uh, documents are being uh, discovered and published all the time. The current figure is just over 5,700. And so what's the earliest one that we have? The earliest one, there's a little bit of argument, as you'd expect, but the earliest one is dated to around 125 AD. Okay. So that's within a couple of generations of the original being written. The manuscripts we have are written a long time after the events that they're reported to record. Is that a problem? It's all relative. So if I just fill you in with some of the details that we have with regard to Christian manuscripts. So we've got that very earliest one dated about 125 AD. We've got other second century papyrus documents that are, um, some of them are small fragments, just odd verses. Others are whole books of the Bible. We've got third century manuscripts that are whole books of the Bible. By the time we get into the fourth century, we've actually got an entire New Testament. Um, you might think fourth century. That sounds like a very long way. It does from, sound like a long time. But let me give you some facts and figures for other ancient documents. So, for example, Tacitus, very important Roman historian, the copy that we have is a thousand years older than the original that he wrote. We have only 20 versions of Tacitus's histories. We have 5,700 versions, either whole or fragments of the New Testament. Um, Plato... The earliest copy we have is 1,200 years removed from the original. Right. So there's been 1,200 years of copying between when he wrote it and when we have the manuscript we can date it to. That's exactly right. And classical historians are very happy with that. So you have to apply the same criteria to the New Testament as classical historians apply to these documents. Um, they're deemed reliable. Now, you've actually seen this 4th century Bible. Tell us about that experience. Oh, my heart was all a flutter. Uh, my stomach turned a thousand somersaults. Um, it's on permanent display in the British Library, so I saw it a few years ago. And it's, it's in a glass cabinet, horizontal. So what's um, it called? It's called it's Codex? It's called Codex Sinaiticus. So Codex just means that it's in book form rather than scroll form. It was discovered in St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai, hence the name Sinaiticus. And um, it's, it's open uh, on display and it's enclosed in a glass cabinet. It wasn't very busy the day that I went. The glass cabinet was about chest height. So I pressed my nose right up against the glass. I made it all steamy <laughs> just so that I could get as close as physically possible to this right. amazing document. Yeah, what was it like when you got that close to, to this fourth century document? Yeah, well, my knees just went weak. <laughs> okay, right. um, and in fact, I could tell you another story. So a couple of years ago, I went up to Macquarie University. They've got a great collection of early Christian manuscripts. And I spent a week learning about them, learning how to decipher the ancient handwriting. It was one of the best weeks of my life. I came back to Melbourne just euphoric, you know, floating on air. And uh, the student services lady at our um, institution, who, who I know quite well, and, and she knew that I was single, uh, she wrote me an email. She said, Gillian, you've got that unmistakable glow about you of, of a person who's met that someone special. <laughs> she said, would you like to spill the beans? <laughs> so I wrote back to her and I said, well, actually, I've had an encounter with fourth century Christian manuscripts. <laughs> it's a bit sad, isn't it? Right. The texts are old, but aren't there lots of variations between them? I mean, leading New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman, who's author of a bestseller, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why, uh, he looks at the differences between the New Testament manuscripts and rejects their trustworthiness. He says that there are more differences among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. How do you react? He's to, absolutely right. He's absolutely right. So, and how does that... How do you react to that? Well, there are 138,000 words approximately in the New Testament. How about you have a guess, Rob? Have a guess how many differences you think there might be. Well, I've read Ehrman's work, and I think he says something like about 200,000 differences. No, you're way off. 
way right. off, nowhere near. Um, that figure's been expanded. Scholars would say now probably about 400,000 400,000? Over 138,000 words Over in the New Testament, that's right. So how can you trust that? Um, it's important that we realise exactly what those kinds of differences are. And more than 99% of them are simple scribal penmanship blunders. So a word might have been missed out, a spelling error might have crept in. Instead of writing Christ Jesus, the scribe has written Jesus Christ. So nothing that makes any material difference whatsoever to the meaning of a sentence or the meaning of the New Testament. So these scribes just made mistakes? They did, like you and me. That still raises another question, though. How can we trust that they took care with transmitting the text? That's a really good question. And we can see from the manuscripts that we have that a number of um, copying conventions crept in really early on. So when the scribes encountered um, specific words such as God, Jesus, Christ, Spirit... They used a system of, of abbreviations for these words. So they might use the first letter and the last letter of the word and put a little line over the top to show that that's what they had done. And there's a remarkable sort of homogenous uh, nature to these abbreviations by the time we've got manuscripts in the second century, which shows that very early on in the first century, these conventions were being developed and adhered to across the Mediterranean basin which shows that scribes didn't feel that they were free to just randomly make things up as they were copying. They were sticking to established standards. But some of the changes made by the scribes were actually intended. They have inserted words into the text of the Bible at different points, haven't they? They have. They have, uh, and we have to grapple with that. So, as I said earlier, just over 99% of the Differences are just scribal errors, mm -hmm. but we've got almost 1%, which would be intentional changes. Yeah. Uh, so how about I show you one? Okay. Uh, so I've got a couple of Bibles here. I'll give you this one. This is the NIV. Thank you. So it's one of the most recent English translations. And I've got the trusty old King James Version here. Yep. So I would like you to look up, please, Acts 8.37. Okay, Acts 8.37. So I've got it here in so my I've got Bible. Acts 8:36. Uh, as they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, "Look, here is a water. Why shouldn't I be baptised?" And let me. Oh, hang on. Go straight to 38. There's no Acts 8:37 in you, you, this Bible. You've got no Acts 8:37. There's no Acts 8:37 in this Bible. You've got a dud. You've I got have, a dud Bible. I have. We Rob. have to take it back to the publisher. I demand a refund. They, they don't, you've been you've been sold a bad Bible, I'm afraid, Gillian. They don't yeah. make them like they used to, do they? <laughs> well, what have you got there? So I have. In my King James, I've got Acts 8.36, like you have. Uh, and I'll just fill you in with a little bit of the detail. So Philip is one of the earliest Christians. He happens to be running along in the desert when a eunuch in a chariot who's on his way to Jerusalem is reading the book of Isaiah, and he doesn't understand what he's reading. Philip comes up to the chariot. The eunuch says, how can I understand what I'm reading when there's nobody to explain it to me? And Philip says, dude, I'm your man. That's actually that's, not that's, in the King that's, James. That's, 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 that's how the Greek, <laughs> the Greek goes. Um, and so Philip begins to explain about this passage in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 53, and uh, it's a prophecy about Jesus. The eunuch, um, the, the lights go on for the eunuch. He understands about Jesus, and he says, why shouldn't I be baptized? Mm -hmm. So I have here in my New Testament, King James Version, Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 
And then 38, which your NIV has. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And both the Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptised him. That's exactly so right. So there we go. That's clear evidence has been tampered with. It has it? indeed been tampered with. It's important we understand the kinds of categories of tampering, if you like. So imagine you're a scribe. You've got a copy in front of you that has the eunuch just uh, saying, why can't I be baptised? And Philip going, yep, no problems, we'll go right ahead. Church practice would dictate that a person actually acknowledges that they have faith in Jesus before they're baptised. So what we have evidence of here is a scribe inserting some church practice into probably not even into the main text to start with, maybe just as a marginal note. But then somebody else comes along 100 years later, um, is going to copy out that particular manuscript, they see the marginal note, and they think, ah, oh, that actually probably should have been in the main text, and so then it finds its way into the main body of the narrative. So there are a number of these uh, similar kinds of verses that are here in the King James Version, not in the NIV. Because when the King James translators had Greek manuscripts in front of them, they didn't have the oldest, most reliable manuscripts that we have that we now use to inform our copy of the Greek New Testament that the NIV is translated from. So we've got these verses that fall into the category of um, putting in church practice, just to make things absolutely clear. Or perhaps there might be a slight difference in wording between one gospel and another. So the Lord's Prayer is an example of that between Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. So one scribe thinks, I'll be helpful and I'll just make it all sound the same. Right, okay. But how do we know this just hasn't happened across the whole Bible? Like it's just a whole bunch of Chinese whispers that have just changed and changed the text. Yeah, that's a really good question. Because we have 5,700 manuscripts, and we know that these manuscripts were produced in um, different areas across the Mediterranean basin. And so scholars and experts have devised this method for working out what is most likely to be a scribal emendation and what's going to be the original. So if you've got uh, a number of really early documents from different areas of the Mediterranean basin that don't have that particular verse in, and then you've got some later manuscripts that do, um, the sort of method of what we call textual criticism, uh, examining the text, would say to us, we go for the oldest, most reliable manuscripts that come from a re regions that are, are varied and diverse, and that can tell us what the original was. Um, if we only had one copy of the New Testament, we would have no idea how close it is to the original. But the fact that we've got 5,700, you know, in comparison with Plato, where we've only got seven versions of his work, we've got this wealth of information that then enables us to get back to the original with confidence. And this wealth of information we have, it doesn't reveal a wholesale changing of texts, as you've alluded to before? That's right. So we've got less than 1% of changes overall are, are fall into this category. Um, we can see from the manuscripts that we do have that there are just odd little bits here and there. Um, and they're all either theologically motivated or church practice motivated. Mm. Today's big question is, isn't the Bible corrupt and untrustworthy? Now, we've been exploring an answer with Gillian Asquith based on textual transmission and manuscript evidence, but the Bible itself also gives reasons to believe it wasn't corrupted. In the New Testament book of 2 Peter, Peter writes a fascinating sentence regarding other scriptures. He writes in chapter 3 to assure his readers of their relationship with God and also about what they have read from the Apostle Paul. He says in 3.15, 
Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. So, Gillian, how does this help us answer the question if the Bible is corrupt? It tells us that very early on, Christians struggled to understand some of their own sacred writings. Yeah. It's not really that good, is it, if you're trying to promote a new organization and a new way of thinking about things and your documents are so hard that people can't actually understand them. Yeah, come on and join us for something that's really hard to understand. That's right. Um, So the fact that Peter acknowledges that the documents are hard to understand suggests that they were still revered as sacred and they would not be touched. So... They were not going to try and iron out some of the difficulties, smooth things over, get rid of the difficult passages to make it more easy for the readers to understand. They were leaving them as they were and just living with the fact that they were difficult. So would you say, though, that part of the way these texts were distorted, that someone were actually changing the text, that they could have been inserting new new things in to make things clear? No, it's clear from the context there that Peter is talking about existing texts that are difficult and then people distort their meaning in, in the understanding of them. Um, and we can see also from, um, there's evidence in the New Testament that tells us that very early on there were checks and balances to make sure that the documents weren't tampered with. So, for example, when a letter was written by Paul, even though it might have been written to a specific congregation, Paul often gave instructions that that document should be shared. So, for example, at the end of his letter to the Colossians, he says, after this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read in the church of Laodicea and that you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea. So if you've got a letter from Paul, you're not going to trust the original to go off to Laodicea. Who knows what they might do with it? So you're going to have a copy made, and you're going to send it off with a trusted letter bearer, who will be a member of your congregation, who will have heard the original read out. He goes off to Laodicea. It's read out in that congregation. If it's different, he's going to put his hand up and say, hang on a minute, that's not right. Something's, something's happened here. So we can see right from the start that people who were acquainted with the originals would have been the people that took copies around other churches. And as you've read out from Second Peter, difficult bits were left in there. Now, you mentioned that some of the parts of the Bible are hard to understand. Does this just mean that we shouldn't try to understand hard things? Not at all. Um, it means we need to work even harder at understanding the Bible. What was your experience in trying to listen to the Bible being read? And did you find it easy to understand? Not at all. Um, so, so when I became a Christian, I understood the overall basic message of Christianity. But then I sat in the pews in church for many years after that, really having very little idea of what was going on mm-hmm. when the Bible was read and when it was taught. So what happened? Um, I went to Bible college and learned how to read it for myself. <laughs> <laughs> right. So but was it worth persevering, though? It, it was worth persevering. I think the bits that are hard to understand are those bits that presuppose a shared cultural understanding. Um, you know, we're separated from the culture of the Bible by time, by language, um, by culture itself. So things are hard to understand. You know, mm-hmm. It reminds me of, uh, so you can tell by my accent that I'm not a native Australian. When I first arrived in Melbourne, I saw a billboard. It said, crows smash pies. <laughs> and I had, I had no idea what to imagine by that. <laughs> I didn't have your shared cultural understanding. So... 
we can grasp the overall message of God's love for us and the uh, significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. But when we want to understand even more about the depths of God's love, then it's important for us to um, get behind the culture of, of the Bible and have that enhanced understanding. Hmm. Why are you interested in this topic? What drives your interest in textual transmission of the Bible? I think what grabs me about it is that despite human fallibility and human error and scribes making blunders, God has preserved his word throughout the generations. And it says to me, God actually works through human error. You know, when you look at the story of the Bible, you see God choosing the nation of Israel, and they stuffed up multiple times. You see Jesus then choosing the 12 disciples, and they were basically just a bunch of losers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they got it very wrong lots of times. Uh, they came good in the end, but mm -hmm. um, they were a shocking bunch, really. Um, and then I look at myself, I think, well, I'm no better. But God used these people in the biblical narrative. He used fallible scribes with all their weaknesses um, to transmit the Bible. And it gives me great hope um, and confidence that God can use me with all my fallibilities. Hmm. So what difference has it made in your life, understanding the origin of the text? Um, it has... How will I express this? I think... I, find, I actually find life really hard. Um, I, am, I have a failed marriage, I'm a sole parent, I've brought two kids up on my own for 20 years. It's not been easy at all. And I think if I weren't a Christian, I would just have the attitude that life sucks and then you die. And having become a Christian, having a relationship with God, it has given my uh, life meaning and purpose and hope, which I think is essential for healthy human existence. I think a lot of the, what we see with um, asylum seekers and refugees in detention centres is that they don't have purpose and hope. I think it's such an essential thing for, for human beings. And it says to me, despite the fact, Gillian, that you have a failed marriage, despite the fact that you have found it really difficult to bring up these two kids on your own, um, I, I can still be useful to God. So, Gillian, as we wrap up, isn't the Bible corrupt and untrustworthy? you ask that question, Rob? Of course it's not. <laughs> so we've seen from, from multiple angles. So we see that the Bible is corroborated by archaeology, uh, particularly the Old Testament with the Dead Sea Scrolls. We've seen that the vast number of manuscripts and their relative closeness in terms of um, time span between the original and, the, and copying is way better than in any other ancient documents we have. We've seen that there were scribal conventions that came about very early on to suggest that scribes were copying to certain standards. And we've seen that where there were doctrinally motivated emendations or um, insertions that reflect church practice, we can see where all of those are. So the Bible is definitely not corrupt and untrustworthy. And it's worth persevering to understand. Absolutely. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, isn't the Bible corrupt and untrustworthy? From 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul writes the same way in all his letters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. I look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions. Please thank our guest today, Gillian Asquith. <laughs>